Welcome to Behind the Curtain, L.A. Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. Thank you so much and good evening, friends. Over 40 years of doing a weekend opera program in Southern California, and I have to say that from the very first time uh, to the very last time. The music of Donizetti has always been a very important part of the music that was performed uh, or that we played on the radio. As a matter of fact, one of the first operas that I found absolutely enchanting was Donizetti's uh, Don Pasquale, if you've ever heard that uh, opera. It's a comic opera, and I was drawn to it, not only by the fact that it was a comedy and a light comedy, but by the manner in which Donizetti was able to capture a certain spirit and a certain momentum in the music that he wrote for Pasquale, who was an older gentleman who was going to marry a young woman who uh, just happened to be the young woman who was the favorite of his nephew. And so this was the story and how that unfolded uh, enchanted me as a young 28-year-old man. Uh, Now I see myself more as Don Pasquale than... than as Ernesto, but you know, that happens to all of us. Elizabeth and Essex, the story that we're about to see this evening as presented by Gaetano Donizetti. Now you need to know that Donizetti wrote, and it depends on what decade it is, but approximately 70 operas. Now you think, my goodness, that's a lot. And in fact it was, because he only lived about 50 years. And it was said that he wrote anywhere from two to five operas per year. Uh, which doesn't give you much time to do anything else but do the work. And yet he was also a conductor, and he would write what sometimes are known as occasional pieces. When someone died, an important person died, or an, uh, an eminent person of royalty celebrated a birthday or some other event, he could, in two or three days, uh, write some music that would uh, fulfill the t- not only the task, but also the importance of the moment for these individuals. And so it occurred to me driving in this evening that 70 operas sound like a lot. And in fact, it was. Many composers wrote 70 operas in their lifetime. We could list them. You don't necessarily need to know that. But other composers struggled with their operas, struggled more emotionally than with their talent. Verdi, Puccini, Wagner. They certainly had the ability to write 70, but in their person, they wanted to do something more than just write something very casual. And that's not to say that Donizetti's music or his operas were casual, what makes Donizetti stand out so much is that so many of his operas were just so good. And that's what we're here to explore today. Now, the character of Elizabeth I in history, almost from the moment that she died, became a romantic social figure that inspired many artists, many dramatists, playwrights, many, many authors, as well as many composers. And we'll experience some of those this evening. Uh, a play was written no less than 35 years after she died, entitled The Count or the Earl of Essex. And there was another play that was written about 60 years after she died. And it was those two stories, the romanticization of Elizabeth's affair with this 32-year-old younger man, the Earl of Essex, that has inspired many artists and many creative geniuses to write music, one of whom was the composer Eric Wolfgang Korngold, who in his own right wrote many fabulous and very important operas, but we probably know him best here in Southern California in the States as the consummate 
composer of film scores, to which he wrote a marvelous introduction to the lives of Elizabeth and Essex. starred Betty Davis and Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland. Errol Flynn, one of the great swashbuckling actors of the first half of the 20th century in great films. And if you've not seen this film, Betty Davis is a tour de force as a woman, an obsessive woman who not only is obsessed by this younger man and her sense of power and history, but also having many mannerisms uh, which are, are unique to, to Betty Davis. Notwithstanding the film, the film from the 19, uh, 1930s, there was also a film in, a silent film in 1912 with Sarah Bernhardt in the, the romance of Queen Elizabeth was her silent film. More current renditions in popular culture were Kate Blanchett and Dame Judi Dench in their more recent representations of Elizabeth II. The character of Elizabeth II was also important in opera, and especially the bel canto composers, which would be the Italian composers from the first half of the 19th century. We know them as Rossini, Giacchino Rossini, Vincenzo Bellini, and of course Gaetano Donizetti. In 1812, Rossini wrote an opera, and his opera was Elizabeth, Queen of England. And this was his first debut in Naples. Uh, and it's a story of Elizabeth, and we're at the Royal Palace where the Earl of Leicester, who was one of Queen Elizabeth's early enamoratas, she is honoring the Earl for his victories against the Scots. Elizabeth is overjoyed at seeing him, but he's shocked to find in the crowd his secret wife among the Scottish hostages. Here is an example of Rossini, who was to be really the dean of early 19th century romantic Italian operas and how he influenced not only Donizetti and Bellini, but ultimately Giuseppe Verdi. Here is a very brief moment from Elisabetta Regina d'Inghilterra, Elizabeth, Queen of England, with Montserrat Caballé by Donizetti. Thank you. 
did you recognize the early um, few bars of that particular music from from Elizabeth Queen of England by Rossini from actually 1815 several years later he actually wrote the opera the barber of Seville and he used the same music in Rosina's um, Dunque Io Son actually fra Una Voce Poco Fa uh, which is probably one of the best known arias uh, from the early the first half of the 19th century now what makes this music so interesting from a historical standpoint is that Rossini Donizetti and Bellini had a group of singers that had phenomenal technique, essentially in their arsenal, and they would perform these operas to the sound that we now hear from singers like Montserrat Caballé and Joan Sutherland, Beverly Sills and Maria Callas. It was part of the repertoire of any particular singer to be able to sing the music, the bel canto music, the beautiful sound, and give this interpretation that we've come to know. But what's interesting is that by the mid-19th century, which would be about 1850 and thereafter, these composers began to, I don't want to say fall by the wayside, but began to go quiet. Their music wasn't performed as often because there weren't the singers to sing it, and the opera audience in the mid-19th century was voracious like filmgoers are today. They consumed much, and they wanted to see and hear different music and changes. So the music of Meyerbeer in France, um, of Verdi, as he matured, of Wagner, it moved away from the beautiful singing or the beautiful sound of bel canto, which became passé to the point where it was almost considered trivial. So there was a period of, of approximately 75 years from about 1870 until the mid-1940s that the music of Rossini, Donizetti, and in particular Bellini as well, really went silent and it's a, it's a head scratch for many of us. The music of, Don, of, of Donizetti in particular, Lucia di Lammermoor, really always stayed in the operatic performance because this was such a, a, a major achievement in terms of music, historical, uh, historical significance, and the audiences continued to like it. But the rest of it was considered at that time dross until the mid-1940s. Now, one critic actually said it was, it was actually Arturo Toscanini, who in the early 1920s assembled a couple of singers, Totti del Monte and Aureliano Pertile. I'm just saying these names. You probably don't know them unless you listen to my radio program over 40 years, and then you, you might have some recognition of them. But he supposedly, Toscanini, led a performance of Lucia that brought the bel canto, the music of Donizetti, back to the fore. But in, in reality, it was a group of singers led by Maria Callas in the mid-19 and late 1940s. She and they had these voices and developed this technique to be able to sing this music with such great emotion, passion, and technique that it became then new and different opera that hadn't been heard. It became the new clothes. It had been silent for 70 years, and now all of a sudden, people didn't want to listen to music of Richard Strauss or Arnold Schoenberg or any of the uh, mid-20th century composers. They wanted the beautiful sound again. And so we now have this just body of work that to this day remains exciting and, and magnificent to hear. So we'll hear another example, this from the opera Rosamunda Dinghilterra, which is, is about the story of Rosamond, again, an opera by Donizetti written in 1834, Rosamond of England. Now, Rosamond was the mistress of Henry II. She only knew him as Edgardo, 
although when she found out that his name was really Enrico or Henry, and he promised to marry her, his jealous wife, that is Henry II's jealous wife, Leonora, kills Rosamonda. This is one of Donizetti's early operas, but again, it gives an example of how he, Donizetti, was attracted to the, to the history of England and how he represents it musically. This performed by Dame Joan Sutherland in a great bel canto fashion, showing the technique that she always brought to the performances of the arias and the music that she performed in that repertoire. You have a sense of the technique that the singers, such as Joan Sutherland, Montserrat Caballé, brought to the bel canto sound, the music of Donizetti, so beautifully performed. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't singers today that have the same technique and enjoy that. From a recording, a recent recording, with the American mezzo-soprano Joyce Di Donato, from an opera that Donizetti wrote, his first Queen Elizabeth's opera. One, you certainly know the three queens, the Tudor queens, Anna Bolena, Maria Stuarda, and, and Elizabeth I in Roberto Devereux, really a series that were made famous by these singers, but in particular Beverly Sills, who performed this so, so excitingly uh, in the late 1960s and 1980s, so much so that Sandra Radvanovsky sang the three queens at the Metropolitan Opera just four years ago or three and a half years ago. But here's an opera with the first Queen Elizabeth that Donizetti wrote, the story entitled Elisabetta al Castello di Kenilworth, Elizabeth and the Castle of Kenilworth. And this is a story of Lester, who was the Queen's favorite before Essex, Roberto Devereux. Lester is excited and anxious to conceal his marriage to Amelia, even though he is the Queen's favorite. He nevertheless has Amelia, his, his lover. Here is a very brief moment with Joyce Di Donato, mezzo-soprano, singing an aria of Amelia from Donizetti's first Elizabeth opera. Thank you. 
And so if memory has it correct, I think Joyce DiDonato is going to be performing a Handel opera next week at the Saturday matinee at the Metropolitan Opera, and you'll be able to hear her on the radio. So that was the first Elizabeth of Donizetti from his opera, Elisabetta al Castello di Kenilworth. So let's talk about the opera, Roberto Devereaux. It was to a libretto by Salvatore Camerano. Now, Donizetti wrote most of his operas. He had a contract with the city of Naples and with the Teatro San Carlo in Naples. And so he wrote many of his operas during a 10-year period from approximately 1822 to 1830. He wrote about 30 operas, five a year, for the San Carlo Opera House, concluding with Anna Bolena, which was the great international success when it was shortly thereafter performed at La Scala. He wrote many operas with Salvatore Camarano, who was a very famous librettist. Now, as it comes to this story, as it comes to this opera, it was believed that Salvatore Camarano actually, would we say, purloined or took the tale, took the libretto from another composer, from another librettist, Felici Romani, who was another Italian, very famous Italian librettist at the time. And there was another composer at the time named Mercandante. And Mercandante wrote 70 operas as well, but his aren't performed very well. And Mercandante, unlike Donizetti, Mercandante was not considered a very um, nice guy, whereas Donizetti, certainly, you read what he wrote about people, his artists, other composers. He was a very magnanimous man in terms of, of dealing with, with artists and with people, notwithstanding. Camerano was accused by Romani's wife and actually sued for, uh, for plagiarism. I read a, a, a biography of Camerano, and that particular author, author said that Camerano did not steal the story from Romani and Mercandante's opera, but instead got it from the material, the source material that both of them used, which was a French play by Francois Ancelot, Elizabeth of England, and then the earlier mid-17th century play, Le Con Essex by Pierre Corneille, that these were really the basis for both of those, as well as the secret history of the most renowned Queen of Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth and the Earl of Essex, which was written by a, an author in 1695, that these were the basis for the story of Roberto Devereaux. Donizetti had a rather humble beginning. His father was a pawnbroker. Uh, he had several sisters and brothers. They grew up poor, but his musical abilities were recognized as a very, very young man. And fortunately, there were benefactors in the community, Bergamo, where they lived, and he was invited to and attended music school. One of the teachers at the music school was a very famous German composer, Mayer, M-A-Y-R, who composed many operas in his own right. And it was this professor, this teacher, Mayer, that gave Donizetti the background and the basis which was to serve him his entire career. In fact, when you read about Donizetti, he's always very grateful for the training that he received from Mayer. At a certain point, he left Bergamo and went to, a, to, went to another city and trained with Padre Mattei, who actually also taught Rossini music as well. So Mayer, a great a pedagogue for Donizetti, and then the teacher, Padre Maite of Rossini, also taught Donizetti, which gave him then the background to compose these operas, to compose these 70 operas in a very short period of time. When it came to his international success, as indicated, or as I said, the opera of Anna Bolena from 19, 1830 was the one that really put him on the international map. 
up until that point, he had two nicknames, one of which was Rossiniana, which meant that he was essentially someone who was writing so many operas like Rossini, because Rossini was actually very capable of writing operas quickly as well. He didn't take to that too well. The Neapolitan community also gave him another nickname. It was called Dozinetti which is Italian for dozen. Because he could write dozens of operas so quickly, he was called Dozenetti instead of Donizetti. In any event, um, the young Donizetti, who, who was very capable of writing operas very quickly, uh, was commissioned in 1837, in the spring of that year, by the Teatro San Carlo to write an opera. And he didn't know what the opera was going to be, so it was Salvatore Camarano who said, let's try this Roberto Devereaux. And as a matter of fact, Donizetti, several years earlier, had approached Felici Romani and asked him if he could use the Mercandante libretto that was uh, from that opera, because Mercandante's opera did not do well, that nothing came of that. But of course, today we know that Donizetti's work with Camaranto um, was very successful. And in fact, it was successful on its first performance. But there were a couple of things that I think it's important to keep in mind when we consider this particular opera and how it came about and the conditions under which it was composed. Donizetti, as I want to say, a, a man of, of great humanity, but of great friendship and loyalty. In 1836, both of his parents died very close in time to one another. Uh, in, in 1828, he had married a young woman named Virginia, who was the daughter of a, of a Roman lawyer, and he was very much in love with Virginia. And up until this point, they had tried to have several children. Their first child was stillborn. Their second child in 1836, again, close in time to Donizetti's loss of his two parents, their second child, a daughter, died stillbirth as well. And in 1837, about the time he was beginning to work on Roberto Devereaux, his wife gave birth to a third child, but it likewise was stillborn. A couple of other things that were happening. This, this third birth for his wife was a very difficult one. And she suffered not only through the birth, but was very ill afterwards. And, and a month and a half later, she too died. Now, there's questions as to what actually caused her death, but in Naples at the time, and now this will resonate with us today, there was a cholera epidemic, and as many as 300 people a day were dying. So it was such a grim circumstance in Donizetti's life and what was taking place both around him personally but in his community, and yet he still stayed on task when it came to writing this opera. He would write letters to his composer friends, and it was very much business as usual, but he was very close with his wife Virginia's brother, whose nickname was Toto, and I'll share with you a, a letter that he wrote to his brother-in-law. This, again, contemporaneously with the death of his child, his, his wife, the cholera epidemic, and the death of his parents, and when he was writing this opera. There are moments said Donizetti, when I would put myself in the hands of a hundred women if they could distract me for half an hour, and I'd pay as much as I could. I try, I laugh, I hope, and I relapse again. And he also felt that this opera was jinxed, not only by the circumstances in which it was created, but 
after the first performance, which was generally received very well, the baritone got sick for two weeks. And after the baritone got sick, the soprano, the prima donna got sick for a couple of weeks. And if those weren't difficult enough, his opera was actually purloined by some other composers, and they actually wrote a, a doggerel version of his work with, with crazy music and gave, gave the opera that work the same name as his and published it, or at least performed it under his name. And while he didn't like that, he was also disappointed that he was losing the money that would come from those performances. So at the same time, Within the city of Naples, one of the directors of the Naples Conservatory, the guy who had been there for many years, died, and Donizetti was figuring that he would apply for the job and was receive it. It would be a royal appointment, but he didn't receive that appointment as well. So with the disappointment that, uh, that he experienced after many successful years in Naples, Donizetti decided to leave and he went to Paris. And while he recognized that the Parisians didn't necessarily like Italian opera because he felt they didn't understand Italian, he recognized that there was ability based on what Rossini and Bellini had accomplished in Paris that he too could be successful in Paris. And he wrote some of his greatest scores in Paris, one of which we probably all know as the daughter of the regiment, one of the happiest uh, ebullient operas in the entire romantic Italian repertoire. So despite the fact that he was very capable of writing operas very quickly, and even if he could put three or four out at one time, there were always circumstances that, that create part of the history of what goes into the, to the opera. So what do we have today? We have Roberto Devereux. And what type of opera do we see in that? It is a lyric drama, and it's in three acts. And it is the story of Elizabeth and the Earl of Essex. And it really takes place over the course of a day, but it compresses history, uh, moves it around a little bit, uh, such that some of the issues, some of the real relationship between Roberto Devereux and, and Elizabeth are, are played with a little bit freely, as are some of the other aspects of, of who the other characters are. In looking at how Donizetti would construct an opera, uh, one particular commentary, and this goes back to the, uh, to the, this is the Earl of Harwood who wrote an opera book at the turn of the 19th to the 20th century. He wrote that the structure of Donizetti's operas all seemed to be the same. And the audience wanted this structure. They wanted to feel comfortable that when they went to the opera, they would hear a work that conformed to a certain structure. And while Donizetti didn't particularly like that, it was part of what was required. When he went to Paris, there's a certain structure that operas in Paris had to be written. There had to be a ballet. There couldn't be certain crescendos at points. There was a, a requirement that the composers conform to a structure. And so the Earl of Harwood actually pinned Donizetti very carefully. He said the structure, there's an introductory chorus, there's the her heroine's opening cavatina, there are meetings and pairings of lovers, there are would-be lovers, confrontation with rivals, mistaken identity, and mad scenes. And whether from Schiller or Sir Walter Scott, all followed this well-trodden path. And when you see the opera this evening, you're going to find that, in fact, it is a well-trodden path, and that the Earl of Harwood certainly gave us, in those few words, the structure by which Donizetti wrote Roberto Devereux.
And yet within that own writing, the music, there is more drama in the recurring themes that you would find earlier in Donizetti's work. There was a keener sense of atmosphere suggested in orchestral color, and there was economy of means and direct effect to give a lightness to the complexity that unfolds. Robert Schumann, who was the German composer, otherwise known as Robert Schumann, once described Donizetti's Lucrezia Borgia as music for a marionette theater. Again, this sense of structure. The Germans and the French didn't think much of Italian opera, but Hugo Wolf, another German composer who wrote a great body of song or leader, said of Italian romantic opera, I must say that although I'm not a great fan of Italian music, yet the opera rather pleased me. And in many ways, that describes how the French and the Germans looked at this music. So the story of the opera, it takes place in approximately 1600. And it's the story that takes place where we meet right at the beginning a chorus of young women who are the ladies in waiting of Sarah, Sarah Nottingham. Sarah Nottingham is actually the love of Roberto Devereux. This is not historically accurate, but it's what takes place in this opera. And we see her among her ladies in waiting, and she's very sad, and she sings an emotional aria on how she is despondent and, and feels alone like Rosamunda felt in relationship to, to Henry, the man that she was going to marry. After we have this heartfelt aria, Queen Elizabeth comes, comes in, and she too recognizes that she wants to bring back the love that she felt with Roberto Devereux. He has been arrested for treason, and Cecil and Raleigh, who are parliamentarians and her lieutenants, want to have him convicted and sentenced to death immediately. So we have the queen coming in who, who is in love with Roberto Devereux, recognizes that he has betrayed her in Ireland when her orders were directed to keep on fighting and he created a peace with the Irish rebels. When he came back, he was arrested for treason. Historically, he was arrested for treason and, and, and put in jail. He was tried and convicted while he was in jail. He caused a rebellion. He had some of his lieutenants rise with him and were going to attack and try to overthrow the queen. So this, in many ways, sealed his fate. So these two events are present in the opera. And Elizabeth knows that Roberto Devereux is going to be convicted of treason, but she realizes that she She's the regent and can save him. And if he will recognize and confirm his love of her, she will do what she can to save him. So we have the beginning of the opera, and it's an overture that was written by Donizetti for the French premiere that took place about a year after its premiere in Italy. And you'll hear a little bit of music that probably is, you'll recognize uh, in, the, in the early part of the overture.
so you get the recognition of the, the scene, uh, the, God save the queen. So we have the overture. Then we have the aria for Sarah. We meet her. The queen comes in. She sings of her love for Robert. And notwithstanding the fact that Cecil wants Robert tried for treason immediately, she recognizes that she can, if Roberto will reaffirm her love, she will do what she can to save him. Now, there's one little interesting, one aspect of, of the story, at least the mythology of the Earl of Essex and Queen Elizabeth of this ring, that if that she once gave him a ring and said, if you ever present that ring to me, I will save you under any circumstance. So there's this, this ring that Roberto has, and the queen recognizes this, and this becomes an important part in the opera a little bit later. So Robert comes and meets the queen, and she lays forth her emotion. And Donizetti gives a, a very brief but very lovely, emotional, heartfelt aria. The problem is that Robert, Roberto, the Earl of Essex, is in love with Sarah, and he cannot confirm to Elizabeth that he returns her love as she expects. And she senses this from him. When she asks him, who do you love? He says, I love no one. Well, she realizes there's a potential rival, and this brings ire and anger to her. And Donizetti captures this in the duet that they sing. She then expressing her anger towards him, he, Roberto, his ambivalence. And yet, within that, there's still great beauty in the motion and the dramatic turmoil of these characters.
So we also meet the Duke of Nottingham, who is friends, not historically, but within the context of this opera. The Duke of Nottingham, who is Sarah's husband, um, is very much a friend of Essex and wants to save him from, from being beheaded. And so he sings the great aria, and he goes to the queen and asks her to forgive Essex, recognizing that the queen actually believes that Essex has another lover. Now, Nottingham does not know that his wife is the presumed lover, and Elizabeth doesn't know who the, know who the rival is. But what happens is there's a scarf that Sarah is working on. Sarah gives a scarf to Roberto at their last meeting, and he gives her, in a point, a peak. He throws the ring that Elizabeth gave to him on the table, which then is retrieved by Sarah. So Sarah has the ring, Roberto has her scarf. The scarf is discovered on Essex. Nottingham recognizes this and becomes absolutely outraged. So where he was once the great friend of, of Essex, he's now his enemy and wants him dead. The queen signs the condemnation order and the second act comes to an end. The third act, we know that Roberto is in the tower and going to die. He's going to be beheaded. He wants Sarah to take the ring to Elizabeth. But she is unable to do that because Nottingham keeps her in their apartment and won't let her out to take the ring to Elizabeth. So there's a confrontation between Nottingham and Sarah where he accuses her of her infidelity. And the interesting thing is that there has been no infidelity. There's been no physical relationship between Roberto Devereux, the Earl of Essex, and Sarah. It's just their emotional love. We then meet the queen again, and she recognizes at this point that her despair is so much that she's willing to forgive the rival. Whoever, whoever Essex loves, she will agree to, to them being together because she wants to spare his life. And she wants to know when the ring is going to appear. And Devereux, Essex is in the tower. He knows he's going to be beheaded. He wants to know when that ring is going to be delivered. And just as the cannon is sounded that Essex is being beheaded, Sarah comes in and brings the ring too late to the queen when she realizes that Sarah is her rival. And Nottingham steps forward and says, I wouldn't let Sarah come here because I wanted my own vengeance. The queen then dispatches both of them. She essentially arrests them. And she's left alone. And Donizetti writes this very short mad scene where the queen believes that, that there is a, is a headless man walking through the castle and there's an open tomb in which she must enter. Now there's one very brief aria that the queen sings. It's, it's called Vivo and Grata. And this is where she says she's going to forgive whoever Essex is in love with. And she doesn't even know who it is, but she's willing to do that, to forgive him, because she loves him so much. And Beverly Sills sings it uh, with such great beauty and poignancy. Um, I thought we should hear a bit of it.
she sings, Vivo en granto, live, ungrateful man, at her side, my heart forgives you. Live, O cruel one, and abandon me. Leave me forever to sigh. Enjoy the performance, friends. Thank you so much. You've been listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thanks, and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.